Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. And just a couple of quick heads up on Friday night. I will be on Bill Maher's show on HBO. That's going to be a lot of fun. And we're starting our book tour on Saturday this weekend at three o'clock in Los Angeles. It's the KPFK Speaker Series. I'll be there with Stephanie Miller. I'll be talking about the hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment, my new book. And then Sunday in Seattle at Town Hall, they've already sold over 700 tickets there. The venue will hold a thousand. So there's still a couple of seats available in San Francisco. I'll be at First Church in Berkeley on Tuesday the 25th, on Friday the 28th in Darien in Chicago at Frugal Muse. A bookstore on Saturday, June 29th in Minneapolis, actually in St. Paul at the Next Chapter Booksellers, formerly Common Good Books, and in Philadelphia, uh, July 12th, and uh, that's with Netroots Nation. So that's kind of the announcements for the day. That's set. Congressman Mark Pocan is with us taking your calls. He is, of course, the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, along with Pramila Jayapal. And he also represents brilliantly the 2nd District of Wisconsin in the U.S. House of Representatives. His website, pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. And Congressman, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. And I should add, if you're new to the program, Congressman Pocan takes your calls on whatever's on your mind. Congressman, it seems to me increasingly that the Senate has become the place where good things go to die. I think it was Senator Mark Warner said, basically, we show up, McConnell holds a few votes on right-wing judges, and then he sends us home. And I understand there's over 100 pieces of good legislation that have been passed by the House of Representatives that Mitch McConnell is refusing to even even uh, allow a debate on, including things like securing our elections against hacking by North Koreans, Chinese, Russians, take your choice, Saudis. What's up? Chris Murphy came to the Progressive Caucus a few weeks back and said the exact same thing that Senator Warner said. You know, they just vote on extremist judges and they get nothing else done. And Mitch McConnell has referred to himself as the Grim Reaper. Uh, so as we send these bills over, you know, we had H.R. 1, the Campaign Finance, Elections, and Ethics Reform Bill. We have bills to protect people with pre-existing conditions. We've had several bills on gun violence prevention, the Equality Act for the LGBTQ community, a bill for DREAMers and TPS, uh, Paycheck Fairness, women making 80 cents on the dollar, I've sent that bill over. Climate action, trying to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement. Net neutrality, trying to save free and open Internet. And Violence Against Women Act, just for starters, are all sitting 
at Mitch McConnell's desk, and he doesn't intend to move anything. So I think this summer you're going to see a lot more action building around trying to get the Senate to do something on all these important pieces of legislation. So while Trump is putting children in cages, McConnell is putting good legislation in cages. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'll tell you, there's going to be a lot still coming through the appropriations process we're doing right now. But we need the Senate to act, and yeah. they're not doing much of anything. Yeah. Our lines are lighting up. Before Great. we get there, I just a quick question. There is speculation. You've got the military appropriations bill. You know, the founders, the framers of the Constitution were so opposed to there being a standing army during time of peace that they required that the army be reauthorized every two years or it would cease to exist. It's in Article 1, Section 8. So that's must-pass legislation. That's coming up. Then you've got your a larger appropriation, kind of the omnibus appropriation. There's a few other bills, plus the debt ceiling. All of these are opportunities for Donald Trump to grandstand, to uh, create drama and reality TV, and to screw up the country some more. Do you have any inside uh, skinny on how this might play out or thoughts on it and how the Democrats and all the rest of us should be reacting when, if and when this happens? I mean, we're looking at this playing out yeah. over, what, the next two months, I think? Yeah, and our fiscal year, technically, on September 30th, I think the next two weeks after that, we're supposed to be in district. I'm not planning anything substantive in district because I think we're going to be here. Donald Trump is a reality show star first, head of the Trump Business Organization second, and then this thing called President third. And he thinks that things like shutdowns are good for ratings as opposed to you know, what they really have a devastating impact on the economy. So I think it's uh, very likely that he's going to continue to be obstructionist on all this stuff. You know, there's things we thought we could work with him on, maybe on some small piece of prescription drugs, maybe on infrastructure. But this is a guy who loves the rallies and running for president rather than being president. And I assume we're going to have lots of big battles coming up. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Linda in Pompano Beach, Florida, you are on the air with Congressman Mark Pocan, the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Thank you, Congressman, for taking my phone call. I uh, talked to you last year. You said you were uh, going to put a subcommittee together for the Teamsters. I'm out of local 769 retired. And our pension fund was, you know, up in the air. Right now, we just got a notice that said we owe $53 million, and they only have $14 million left in there to pay the pensioners. Yeah. And I know it only concerns 400,000 Teamsters, but, you know, there are some of us that we cannot make this money up. And what is the government going to help us with? I just wanted to know. Yeah, Linda, so what happened last year, remember there was a joint committee between the House and the Senate, bipartisan committee, that was supposed to tackle this. And I know you're going to be shocked. They didn't do it by December. So that didn't work. I think now that the Democrats are in charge of the House, we will probably lead on what I think you know is the Butch Lewis Act, which will make sure that we're fixing that fund for what we need to for especially the Teamsters and the Central States Fund. But we have the miners. We have a number of other folks that are affected. I think you will see legislation move out of the House, but we need to get the Senate and the President on board. So there's going to be a little work still on that. But there has been no reduced commitment from the House Democrats, at least the differences compared to Last session, we are now in charge, so we can at least move a bill, and that Butch Lewis Act, or at least it was, I think, formally named that, seems to be the proper vehicle that everyone's behind. So watch for that. I'm guessing it'll be after the August break, just because we're in the middle of appropriations and things now, but the leader is still very committed to it from a meeting I've had as recent as the last three weeks. Laura in Chicago, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Congressman. I'm very, very worried that Trump is really headed full steam towards war with Iran. And I'm wondering what the Congress is going to do, how they're going to block him. 
And also, don't you think that impeachment, you know, might actually lower Trump's standing in the world so maybe other countries won't join in on this really ridiculous policy against Iran? Yeah, great questions, Laura. So first of all, the leader just added a meeting for Democrats to talk about the situation in Iran. Just in the, the leader being Nancy minutes. Pelosi? Yes, I'm yeah. sorry. Thank you, Nancy Pelosi. So we will have a caucus-wide discussion. You know, we did add some language in the defense appropriations bill that's on the floor that does address this to try to make sure that we're not just rushing to a confrontation with Iran. But there are a lot of things we need to do. To your second part of the question, would impeachment stop that? Yes, but again, we don't have enough, I think, of the members and not Leader Pelosi yet there. I think there are now 67 by my last count, of us who've said we need to start an impeachment inquiry, but we have 218 people that get the majority in the House, so we've got a little work to do on it yet, but you're right, I suppose, on one hand that would. On the other hand, though, some of us think that this may be the very reason why he's doing this, is to try to, it's harder to go after someone, to have to do an impeachment process if you're at war, which is all the more reason why we need to get after it now before it starts. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> it's, it's getting scary. This, this could be really, really bad. Steve in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Thank you for taking my call and for doing what you guys do. I just had a very simple question. Not long ago, I remember Trump made a statement about how he's out there in the open and that he's more visible than any president in history and so forth. But I can remember him hounding Obama during his eight years about wanting to see his grades, not just his birth certificate, but he wanted to see his grades. And then I listened to someone on the show say a few weeks ago that he won't allow anyone to, he'll sue the schools if they try to release that information. Is that true? To the best of my knowledge, Steve, I saw the same thing that he said he would, which, does it surprise you? <laughs> it doesn't me. I, I don't see this guy as a guy who has got grades that he would want to show off. And if there's anyone who would show off anything that's good, it would be Donald Trump. So, you know, I think it's just, again, part of the chasing of Donald Trump's rhetoric on this. But I wouldn't be surprised at all if he was not the student that he's telling you. Because what is he again? A, what's the words? Tom? Very stable uh, genius. Very stable genius. That's yes. it. Very stable genius. <laughs> oh, geez. Toby in Everett, Washington. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes, hello. Thanks for taking my call, and thanks for your great work. I wish you could educate me as to why the Senate Majority Leader is allowed to obstruct all of those votes on all of those bills. That's it. Thank you. Sure, Toby. Well, I, and to be perfectly honest, it's not that different in the House. The leader sets the agenda, what gets on the floor. We do have a process in the House, and I can't speak for the Senate, but they still don't have the numbers, I would assume, to operate that way. We do have a discharge petition in the House where if you get a majority of members of Congress to sign it, you can force a vote. But it's very hard to go against your party's leadership when you're in the minority on that. So it's unlikely that something like that would work in the House, I doubt, in the Senate. So it's just the power of being the leader of that House that they can schedule what bills come forward. Now, there's certain must-pass pieces of legislation, and often that's why we do a lot of work around the appropriations bill and the NDAA for defense and some other things, because we know they've got to pass if we can put the House position with some good language in there. When we get to conference committee, we can try to keep it, but it's a reason why individual bills 
right now he is able to keep away from getting a vote. I'm sorry. Terry in Ventura, California. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Tom. Great work. Very simple question for Congressman Pocan. My strong beef, which I'm very annoyed by, Democrats have to do a better job of rebutting uh, the Republican talking points currently being the Steele report. I remember reading stories in The Guardian and other media that the Steele report really predates Hillary. It, it was purchased by Fusion GPS. Is it? it was. It was purchased um, by. Yeah, the original contract that led to it was between the Washington Free Beacon right-wing newspaper and the Rubio campaign, and they hired Fusion GPS, who hired, who bought the Steele Report, apparently, and then Hillary yeah, but, Clinton inherited all that. That's my understanding. I'm sorry. You asked Congressman Pocan. I. I'll get out of this. No, no, no. Thank you, Tom. No, but my further report is my reading in the Guardian said M16 had been tracking the. Trump mafia connection, mafioso connection with the Russians well in advance, because Europe has been well known about Trump's corrupt business practices with Russia way before 2015, and it was really predated. And that's my question. Why aren't they rebutting what the Republicans are doing? Your fellow congressman from Wisconsin, Representative Sean, whatever, he made an absolute fool of himself last night in an interview. Uh, Run out the clock and shout. And please rebut the Steele report. That's my question. And if I could add, Congressman, as part of that question, it seems to me like the reason why we have a law against foreign gifts, you know, anything of value from a foreign national to a candidate for public office is because a gift creates an obligation. And so, you know, if somebody comes to me and gives me $100,000 and says, hey, here, just have some money, I'm feeling generous, I think I've got a pretty good idea that down the road they're going to come back and ask for something. On the other hand, if I want something and I go out and buy it, there's no obligation anymore. Is that part of an understanding of the difference between the Steele Report and Trump soliciting help from the Russians? Yeah. So, you know, the Steele Report is one part of it, right? It did predate uh, Terry's right. It was started by Republicans and conservatives, and then they did transfer through a payment for the very reason I think that you just expressed. I think also Terry brought up, really important, Sean Duffy from Wisconsin, who, by the way, wants to run for governor next time, from what I understand, made the rather interesting, uh, interesting meaning crazy, argument that because the economy is good in Wisconsin, which actually it's not, we're hurting from the tariffs, our farmers are hurting terribly, that it's essentially, you know, maybe it's okay to have a little obstruction. It was a really amazing interview, Tom, and I know a lot of people have brought it up Mm. to me already because it was just so amazing to have someone say something so incredibly crazy. But I do think that one of the things, Terry, that I'm trying to get across is when you look at the Mueller report and why we're trying to get witnesses, the part that Donald Trump lied when he said he was no longer in negotiations to do business in Russia, it went on for months and months and months. According to the Mueller report, he was going to make a billion, it's billion with a B, dollars, in essentially licensing his name, not to own any properties, but just to license his name. And maybe that has something to do with when you have a 90-minute phone call with Vladimir Putin, you don't bring up the first half of the Mueller report, which is the extensive amount of interference that they had in our elections. So I think all of this needs to get out there more. But, you know, to try to counter Sean Duffy's crazy arguments, I think everyone did just by watching them happen. Yeah, amazing. Barry in St. Louis, Missouri, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yeah, hi, Congressman. This is Barry from St. Louis. FDR had weekly fireside chats. 
the nation doesn't know what's being passed by the House. It doesn't know what the executive branch is doing about the environment, workers, health, and so forth. Can you guys get like full-page ads in papers and maybe ads on TVs or get time on uh, CNN and the other news shows on, on a weekly basis so that people know what's going on in, in the world there? Yeah, so Barry, first of all, that does kind of happen. The leader has regular press conferences, but the mainstream corporate media doesn't always pick that up. So it is a little bit more difficult. It's hard to put out the money to be able to cover what you'd really need to to cover. But one of the things that I think is going to happen through the summer, working with a lot of organizations around the country, is we're trying to highlight all these bills that we've passed that are now sitting in essentially a graveyard of Mitch McConnell. So there is going to be an organized campaign to get this message out, and I think it will be effective. And I'm already hearing it from some sources that I follow, which is good. So the message is getting out there. But, I mean, for those of you who can see, this is a, a graphic that our leader's office has put together. McConnell's graveyard mentioning some of the bills. Mm. And this is the sort of stuff you're going to see coming out I think, throughout the summer to really put pressure on the Senate. So we do do them weekly, Barry. I wish they got covered. They don't. But I think we are finding ways to work with a lot of outside groups to really get this message out throughout the summer. Yeah. I noticed that Chuck Schumer held a press conference, and I saw no coverage of it at all. It's just it's, yeah. it's terrible. Blaine in Thousand Oaks, California, listening on KPFK. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Tom, you're a hero. Congressman Pocan, I wonder if you could clear something up for me. Help me understand something. Say that President Trump does decide to walk out on Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody. A policeman is nearby, sees the whole incident, but doesn't act on it. Doesn't handcuff him, arrest him, take him to jail. Even though he's been trained to do so and taken an oath to serve and protect to follow the law. Ours being a nation of laws. So, too, has Nancy Pelosi and all of Congress have taken an oath to uphold the highest law in the land, the Constitution. So when it has been shown over and over how many laws Trump has broken, the long list, laundry list of the Constitution through the Mueller report, what is the difference between the cop and Nancy Pelosi? And notwithstanding, like, all the numbers and the votes, that's like saying the cop doesn't want to take him in because he doesn't know if the jury will convict. What is the difference between the cop and Nancy Pelosi in Congress? Yeah, Blaine, so I think you simplify it a bit more than I think perhaps is practical, but I'm not totally disagreeing with you. My line, I always say, is the reason I'm for impeachment inquiry, especially since the president is blocking witnesses from coming to get the information we need to, as that's the way to compel witnesses that we have to because our oath is to the Constitution. It's not to uh, any individual or any political party. It's to the Constitution. However, in the Mueller report, there's not an explicit, he did this, but they'll say, here's from interviews what they have, and it does take a little bit of a second step, which is Congress doing its part, since a president can't be indicted according to the Department of Justice, therefore it is up to the impeachment process, and we do need to get some witnesses for it. Just a classic example is Don McGahn. You know, the president has said repeatedly, I never told him to fire Mueller. But if you read the Mueller report, it says he told them he should be gone, he shouldn't be there, they've got to get rid of him. Like every other way of saying fire, but he never used the magic words fire. And that's Donald Trump's little semantical argument. But I think that's where we have to decide, was that done in order to obstruct the investigation? And you get that out of having the testimony of Don McGahn. So that's why now 67 of us are there. I think Nancy Pelosi was hoping to get there by having witnesses come voluntarily 
But now that the dynamic has changed, I think that's why you're seeing more and more members of Congress every single week saying impeachment inquiry. I would not be surprised that we get there very soon. I would add there is some precedent here. Uh, President Ulysses Grant was speeding down Pennsylvania Avenue. I mean, literally, he was riding his horse and carriage way beyond. They had speed limits back in the 1880s. I didn't know this. And he was arrested by a police officer. He was taken to the police station and somebody had to come down and bail him out so that he could go back to the White House and continue being president. So we actually have a precedent for a president being arrested when he commits a crime. Yeah. For what it's worth. (laughs) Anyway, we'll be back with more of your calls for Congressman Mark Pocan right after this here on the Tom Hartman program. Congressman Pocan's website is pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. He is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, represents the state of Wisconsin, the U.S. House of Representatives. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And Ulysses Grant was a Republican at that. Anyway, we'll be back with your calls for Congressman Pocan in just a moment. So for Father's Day, uh, Louise and I went out and climbed a mountain. Well, part of one. (laughs) And boy, am I sore. And, uh, you know, then I had to go back and sit in in my office chair and and i was you know I'm, I'm working on this next book and it's like ah why because it's the x chair the x chair provides customized support in an office chair i mean when it comes to supporting perfect posture providing ideal back support no office chair compares to the x chair the secret is the x chair's dynamic variable lumbar supporter dvl this patented feature is what sets the x chair apart from every other office chair in the world Ideal posture and support equals comfort, and when you're comfortable, the hours spent in the office honestly fly by. Feel the DVL difference for yourself. Try an X-Chair for 30 days completely risk-free. X-Chair is on sale now for 100 bucks off. Go to xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. You can finance your purchase for as little as 30 bucks a month. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWHEELS and you'll receive a free set of the new X wheels for your X chair. That's xchairtom.com. xchairtom.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's the Mueller Report. We're on page 99. Denis Klimnatov, an employee of NES, the new economic school in Moscow, said that when Russians learned of Page's involvement in the Trump campaign in March 2016, the excitement was palpable. Weber recalled that in summer 2016, there was substantial interest in the Trump campaign in Moscow, and he felt that bringing a member of the campaign to the new school would be beneficial. Page was eager to accept the invitation to speak at the new school, and he sought approval from Trump campaign officials to make the trip to Russia. On May 16, 2016, while that request was still under consideration, Page emailed Clovis, J.D. Gordon, and Walid Fares and suggested the candidate Trump take his place speaking at the commencement ceremony in Moscow. On June 19, 2016, Page followed up again to request approval to speak at the NES event and to reiterate that NES, quote, would love to have Mr. Trump speak at the annual celebration in Page's place. Campaign manager Corey Lewandowski responded the same day, saying, quote, if you want to do this, it would be outside of your role with the DJT for President campaign. I am certain Mr. Trump will not be able to attend, end quote. In early July 2016, Page traveled to Russia for the NES events. On July 5th, 2016, Denis Klimnatov, copying his brother Dmitry Klimnatov, emailed Maria Zakharova 
the director of the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs Information and Press Department about Page's visit and his connection to the Trump campaign. Denis Klimnatov said in the email that he wanted to draw the Russian government's attention to Page's visit in Moscow. His message to Zakharova continued, quote, Page is Trump's advisor on foreign policy. He is a known businessman. He used to work in Russia. If you have any questions, I would be happy to help contact him, end quote. Dmitry Kalimnatov then contacted Russian Press Secretary Dmitry Peskov about Page's visit to see if Peskov wanted to introduce Page to any Russian government officials. The following day, Peskov responded to what appears to have been the same Denis Kalimnatov-Zakharova email thread. Peskov wrote, quote, I have read about Page. Specialists say he is far from being the main one, so I better not initiate a meeting in the Kremlin, end of quote. On July 7, 2016, Page delivered the first of his two speeches in Moscow at NES. In the speech, Page criticized the U.S. government's foreign policy toward Russia, stating that, quote, Washington and other Western capitals have impeded potential progress through their often hypocritical focus on ideas such as democratization, inequality, corruption, and regime change. On July 8, 2016, Page delivered a speech during the NES commencement. After Page delivered his commencement address, Russian Deputy Prime Minister and NES board member Arkady Dvorkovich spoke at the ceremony and stated that the sanctions the United States had imposed on Russia had hurt the NES. Page and Dvorkovich shook hands at the commencement ceremony, and Weber recalled that Dvorkovich made statements to Page about working together in the future. The rest of that paragraph has been redacted by Bill Barr. Page said that during his time in Moscow, he met with friends and associates he knew from when he lived in Russia, including Andrei Baranov, a former Gazprom employee who had become the head of investor relations at Rosneft, a Russian energy company. Page stated that he and Baranov talked about immaterial non-public information. Page believed he and Baranov discussed Rosneft President Igor Sechin, and he thought Baranov might have mentioned the possibility of a sale of a stake in Rosneft in passing. We're on page 101 now. Page recalled mentioning his involvement in the Trump campaign with Baranov, although he did not remember details of the conversation. Page also met with individuals from Tatneft, a Russian energy company, to discuss possible business deals, including having Page work as a consultant. On July 8, 2016, while he was in Moscow, Page emailed several campaign officials and stated that he would send, quote, a readout soon regarding some incredible insights and outreach I've received from a few Russian legislators and senior members of the presidential administration here. On July 9, 2016, Page emailed Clovis, writing in pertinent part, quote, Russian Deputy Prime Minister and NES board member Arkady Dvorkovich also spoke before the event. In a private conversation, Dvorkovich expressed strong support for Mr. Trump and a desire to work together toward devising better solutions in response to the vast range of current international problems. Based on feedback from a diverse array of other sources in the presidential administration, it was readily apparent that this sediment was widely held at all levels of government, end quote. Despite these representations to the campaign, and then the rest of that paragraph has been blocked off by Bill Barr. The office was unable to obtain additional evidence or testimony about who Page may have met or communicated with in Moscow. Thus, Page's activities in Russia, as described in his emails with the campaign, were never fully explained. Page 102. D. Later campaign work. This is still Carter Page. Later campaign work and removal from the campaign. In July 2016, after returning from Russia, Page traveled to the Republican National Convention in Cleveland. 
While there, Page met Russian Ambassador to the United States, Sergei Kislyak. That interaction is described in Volume 1. Page later emailed campaign officials with feedback he said he received from ambassadors he had met at the convention. And he wrote that Ambassador Kislyak was very worried about candidate Clinton's worldviews. And then the rest of that paragraph is redacted by Bill Barr. It's the Mueller Report. Welcome back. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls. Nolan in Minneapolis. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Tom. First time caller. Long time listener. Thanks for taking my call. Congressman Pocan, thanks for your leadership. I was just wondering, has the Democratic leadership ever considered developing a Democratic Party app to push notifications, press conferences, and stuff like that, kind of bypassing the regular news channels? It's a good point, Nolan. I know that there is an app that Steny Hoyer has that is called uh, Dome Watch, D-O-M-E Watch. It's out of his office as the majority leader, and it does list floor activity, votes, some of the schedules of Congress, some of his press, some of the jobs that are available. I know of that app. I'm not sure if there is a separate app to put some of that out there, and I like the idea, Nolan. So let me, uh, let me raise it up the flagpole, so to speak, but there is the Dome Watch that I think people might want to take a look at, and you will get a lot of information about the workings that we have when we're in Washington. And Tim in Seattle, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Congressman Pocan. I am wondering about the 417-3 vote on the SECURE Act, the act that changes the retirement system. I know it extends the time in which you can add to your IRA contributions past 70 and a half, but there's a provision in there that effectively confiscates inherited IRA contributions over a 10-year period. It seems to me that this is a method by which middle-class people can tend to generate wealth generation to generation, and this will effectively stop that, keeping people poor or working class for generations to come. So why did you and AOC and Pramila Jayapal and everyone vote for this act? Yeah, Tim, first of all, I'd have to look at the exact provision, although I'm guessing the way you're characterizing it probably isn't true, because Otherwise, you're right, a lot of us would have voted against something that didn't have good middle-class provisions. This did. In fact, we got a few provisions adjusted in the final bill that we were making sure we tweaked properly. So, Tim, I'd have to take a look at it to see the exact, because as you know, that was a big bill, and that was, I think, months ago, or at least a month ago. But I don't remember anything, because otherwise you would have seen, I think, AOC and Pramila and myself and others not support the bill. Stuart, Venice, Florida. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, uh, Tom and Congressman. Thanks for all you do. First, I want to offer the bumper sticker, Drain the White House. I really think we ought to be seeing that one around. I think it's uh, perfect. But I have a question, and it dates back. I'm 70 years old, so is my wife. She went to Wisconsin, Congressman. She went to University of Wisconsin. I went to the University of Illinois. At the time, I think our tuitions were two or $300 a year, hers included book rental. Tom has been saying all along about how we need a progressive base candidate. I couldn't agree more. But I think we maybe should consider adjusting our language. Instead of free college, how about affordable college? And instead of Medicare for all, a lot of younger people think Medicare is free. Medicare is anything but free. I'm on it, but it's affordable. And I think if we're scaring away people in the middle, we're doing it with free, free, free. And I really think we should switch to affordable, affordable, affordable. 
And, you know, there are colleges, for example, I live near Warren Wilson College, which is a private school, and all the students work 10, 15 hours a week, whether it was food service or janitorial. So, you know, we could put in programs like that and stop using the word free and start using the word affordable, and I think we'd bring more people into our broader base and not be characterized as uh, some sort of uh, left-wing people, which we aren't. We just have reasonable ideas, and we want to help people. Yeah, Stuart, I do agree that words matter, and obviously people like Frank Luntz for the conservative movement, all he does is fine-tune the words they're working on. You know, I think one thing that you bring up is important, and I think sometimes on the left we might get a little lost on one of our favorite candidates may have a proposal that does something, and we decide that's the only proposal out there. But, you know, one of the, the problems with the free college narrative is the most of the bills out there, and at least the leading bills out there, just cover tuition when that's actually less than half of your expense, especially if you're going to a two-year college, it's a small fraction. Would your room and board and all the other expenses actually add up to more? We have a debt-free college proposal that actually does what you just said, Stuart. That's one that we worked on with Demos. You would work probably 10 to maybe it's 15 hours a week in a work-study job, but out of that you would leave a public institution with a four-year degree with zero debt whatsoever. So that's your tuition but also your living expenses, your books, and all other expenses. To me, in many ways, that is a more progressive idea than just saying free tuition, because that means also the Koch brothers' nephews could be going to school for free, but then not considering the majority of expenses people have, which are the other expenses. So I think there's a lot around the wording, and you're right, we need to get that right, but I also think sometimes the actual parameters of a proposal are really important, too, and I think once you have a chance to explain them to people, you're right, we do much better, and uh, attaching the right wording to it might be a really important addition. Christine in Toledo, Ohio, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yeah, hi. So recently, Senator Elizabeth Warren put on her website a calculator for how much someone would save on child care with her plan. And I was wondering if with a larger and more complex plan like Medicare for All, you could do a similar calculator so that people can compare and contrast their private coverage, whether it be through work or on their own, versus the plans that and proposals that are out there. That's a great idea. Yeah, Christine. In fact, it's one of the things we're trying to do is, you know, with having the hearings now, we've had three hearings on Medicare for All, is we're, you know, waiting for that all-important CBO score because then we can look at it, make sure it's right, or if there's any uh, tweaking that we might want to suggest to find out what the cost and or savings could be, and then showing people that, right? And I think it is important so often to harmonize business owners have said, you know, the amount of money that businesses put into paying for health insurance, if that money was freed up, you hire new employees, you reinvest in your equipment, there's also those ripple effects. And I don't know if there's a way to catch that in a calculator, but there's certainly ways to make that point as we get this score. So you're right, in having those sorts of details, I think it really helps to explain why we advocate for some of the proposals we do, especially things like Medicare for All. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Will you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the FRED chart on the purchasing power of the dollar and look at the data yourself. 
Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call one own gold That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. Bill in Los Angeles, listening on KPFK. Bill, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, good morning, guys. So my question is around why Title VII of the Civil Rights Act had to die. I feel like it was traded for something, but I don't know what it was traded for. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the EEOC here in California says that they've got more than 80,000 discrimination complaints backlogged. That was in 2017. So I kept the news that was left for me in my workplace, and I was also threatened with a cross-burning by a supervisor if I dared show up to work. This isn't the past. This is in this century. There's no enforcement of Title VII, so people do whatever they want to in certain industries. Tom, I know you've been in L.A. before, so you've seen Hollywood. My my workplace mm-hmm. is Hollywood. Yeah. There's about there's less than 2% black people working on those below-the-line crews, and it's been that way for the last couple of decades. So what happened the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, and how can we breathe some life back into it? You know, Bill, I don't have a good answer for you right now, I'll admit. I don't know if this is something specific to some California law or if you're just specifically referring to the national, but I just don't have a good answer. I'm not familiar enough with the instances that you're bringing up in California. Conrad in Ramona, California, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, uh, Congressman Pocan. I'm really happy to hear you using that language. You want to find some precise words. I have a George Lakoff or Luntz for you uh, phrase. Every time a progressive is asked on a new show, but how will you pay for it? We, the first five words out of our mouths has to be the way we did before with the, the tax rates we had under uh, Kennedy and uh, Nixon, 74% tax rate. That's all. Yeah, you know, I think the Lakoff book is a great book. And, you know, we really don't have the same professionalism, and I think sometimes having a few per- people that just work on the words that we use, and then the real test is Republicans are so strongly disciplined that they repeat those words over and over, where I think Nancy Pelosi often tells a story of, you know, when there's a half a glass of water on the table, oh, there's a half a glass of water on the table, and then the next one will be, there's a half a glass of water on a coaster on the table, and the next one is, there's a glass that's half full on it. And, and the ways that we sometimes don't have the same discipline in getting that message across, and it is really important. And specifically, the other thing I think to bring up is tax expenditures. You know, when they passed that tax bill, it added $1.9 trillion to the deficit unfunded, and 83% of that money is going to the top 1% in just eight more years, that that is an expense. When you choose to spend it on tax breaks for the wealthiest, that's like spending it on education or health care. And we need to get that across, that taxes are really tax expenditures, tax cuts are tax expenditures, and there's a cost to society when you do that. And I think we need to be much better as progressives and as Democrats in getting that across. Smitty in, boy, you're going to have to pronounce that town there in Hawaii. It's Kalakakai. Thank you. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Aloha. Aloha. Obi-Com, Kenobi, and Jedi Pocan. I know that sounds corny, but this is really a battle of good against evil. My question is, why hasn't Adam Schiff put a subpoena on the translator 
that was there the day after Comey was fired and the Russian ambassador and foreign minister were in the Oval Office alone with yes. our president. Sonny, I hear you. One of the things about how intelligence works is they often meet in a private closed session, and for all we know, there may be something like that already done. I can't answer that directly, but they do operate differently than any other committee in how they bring witnesses and how they proceed to get information. So I don't have an answer why publicly they haven't, but I can't say that they also haven't because of how they operate. But, you know, that is interesting, right? Because the fact that the translator was in a room and had some information, I don't know if there's some other executive privilege I assume might be assigned at that level, but, boy, wouldn't you want to have been a fly on the wall during those conversations? Yeah, and his meeting with Putin in Helsinki, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. James in Spokane, Washington. You're on the air with Congressman Pokan. Yeah, Congressman, I was wondering, uh, there's two things that have affected me. I'm 66 years old. Two things that have affected me adversely and made me very negative my whole life. Those being prison conditions across the board and the war on drugs. Is there, in fact, a caucus in the House addressing these two things particularly? And if not, why not? Yeah, so let me, I guess I could say they're related in the sense that there have been a number of bills that have some bipartisan support that address prison and maybe broader than prison conditions, but even sentencing. We do have some Republicans, like Jim Sensenbrenner from Wisconsin, who are trying to start getting smarter on crime instead of just the, when we got tough on crime, we had that long period of time, and all we did is throw in penalty enhancers and all the rest, and they realized that for humanitarian but and cost reasons, we need to turn that around. So there has been some work in a bipartisan way, and I actually think you'll see some of that come out of this Congress. But specifically to the war on drugs, I think we have a lot farther to go, and there are a lot of us in both parties who work on this. But don't forget, it's not just marijuana is still a Schedule One drug like heroin, which is ridiculous when 30 states have some form of legalized marijuana. When you look at things that they're trying to still add to Schedule One, we are really in a spot that is still a very antiquated law. I mean, even the differences between cocaine and crack, all the rest, there needs to be more done. There is some potential because, again, there is cross-party agreements on some of these areas. And even Grover Norquist, I hate to admit it, but usually I disagree with on everything, has got a group called Right on Crime, which for cost reasons is trying to do some changes in this. But you will see some go through the Congress uh, this session, uh, never at the speed all of us would like because nothing operates in Congress that quickly. But there is some positive movement, probably more so on sentencing reform in general than there is on the war on drugs. Jeff in Portland, Oregon, do you have a very quick question for Congressman Pocan, please? Okay, thanks for all you do. My question for Congressman Pocan is this, with all the graft, corruption, lies, abuses of power, the barbaric and regressive policies and the daily dismantling of democracy as we know it, when something like 75-80% of Democratic voters and almost half of all voters favor an impeachment inquiry, over 1,000 federal prosecutors saying it's an open and shut case of obstruction, at what point, Congressman, do we start to question, seriously question Speaker Pelosi's intransigence on this monumental responsibility? Yeah, I mean, as I said, there a growing number of members every single week are leading to it. I don't think this should be decided by polls, so I do disagree. I don't want to make it political. I think it's an oath to our Constitution, and if he's going to block witnesses, we have no other way to go other than an impeachment inquiry. So that's the case many of us have made to the leader we're going to continue to make, and I think there are other polls that show impeachment not that high in the numbers, though, which is part of why we need to make a public case. Yeah, there you go. Congressman Pocan, thanks so much for dropping by today. Absolutely, Tom. Thank you. And we'll see you next week. Sounds good. Thank you so much. 
This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's the Mueller Report. We're on page 102. This is about uh, campaign work that Carter Page did for the Trump campaign. Following the convention, Page's trip to Moscow and his advocacy for pro-Russia foreign policy drew the media's attention and began to generate substantial press coverage. The campaign responded by distancing itself from Page, describing him as a, quote, informal foreign policy advisor who did not speak for Mr. Trump or the campaign, end quote. On September 23, 2016, Yahoo News reported the U.S. intelligence officials were investigating whether Page had opened private communications with senior Russian officials to discuss U.S. sanctions policy under a possible Trump administration. A campaign spokesman told Yahoo News that Page had no role in the campaign and that the campaign was not aware of any of his activities past or present. On September 24, 2016, Page was formally removed from the campaign. Although Page had been removed from the campaign after the election, he sought a position in the Trump administration. On November 14, 2016, he submitted an application to the transition team that inflated his credentials and experiences, stating that in his capacity as a Trump campaign foreign policy advisor, he had met with top world leaders and effectively responded to diplomatic outreach efforts from senior government officials in Asia, Europe, the Middle East, Africa, and the Americas. We're now on page 103. Page received no response from the transition team. When Page took a personal trip to Moscow in December 2016, he met again with at least one Russian government official. That interaction and a discussion of the December trip are set forth in Volume 1, Section 4. Number 4, Dmitry Symes and the Center for the National Interest. Members of the Trump campaign interacted on several occasions with the Center for the National Interest, CNI, principally through its president and chief executive officer, Dmitry Symes. CNI is a think tank with expertise in and connections to the Russian government. Symes was born in the former Soviet Union and immigrated to the United States in the 1970s. In April 2016, candidate Trump delivered his first speech on foreign policy and national security at an event hosted by the National Interest, a publication affiliated with CNI. Then-Senator Jeff Sessions and Russian Ambassador Kislyak both attended the event, and as a result, it gained some attention in relation to Sessions' confirmation hearings to become Attorney General. Sessions had various other contacts with CNI during the campaign period on foreign policy matters, including Russia. Jared Kushner also interacted with Symes about Russian issues during the campaign. The investigation did not identify evidence that the campaign passed or received any messages to or from the Russian government through CNI or Symes. Subtitle A, CNI and Dmitry Symes connect with the Trump campaign. CNI is a Washington-based nonprofit organization that grew out of a center founded by former President Richard Nixon. CNI describes itself, quote, as a voice for strategic realism in U.S. foreign policy, end quote, and publishes a bi-monthly foreign policy magazine, The National Interest. CNI is overseen by a board of directors and an advisory council that is largely honorary and whose members at the relevant time included Sessions, who served as an advisor to candidate Trump on national security and foreign policy issues. Dimitri Symes is president and CEO of CNI and the publisher and CEO of The National Interest. Symes was born in the former Soviet Union, emigrated to the United States in the early 1970s, and joined CNI's predecessor after working at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Symes personally has many contacts with former and current Russian government officials, as does CNI collectively. 
As CNI stated when seeking a grant from the Carnegie Corporation in 2015, CNI has, quote, unparalleled access to Russian officials and politicians among Washington think tanks, end quote, in part because CNI has arranged for U.S. delegations to visit Russia and for Russian delegations to visit the United States as part of a so-called Track 2 diplomatic effort. On March 14, 2016, CNI board member Richard Plepper organized a luncheon for CNI and its honorary chairman, Henry Kissinger, at the Time Warner Building in New York. The idea behind the event was to generate interest in CNI's work and recruit new board members for CNI. Along with Symes, attendees at the event included Jared Kushner, son-in-law of candidate Trump. Kushner told the office, that's the special prosecutor of the Mueller office, that the event came at a time when the Trump campaign was having trouble securing support from experienced foreign policy professionals, and that, as a result, he decided to seek Symes' assistance during the March 14th event. Symes and Kushner spoke again on March 24th, 2016, on the telephone, three days after Trump had publicly named the team of foreign policy advisors that had been put together on short notice. On March 31st, 2016, Symes and Kushner had an in-person, one-on-one meeting in Kushner's New York office. During that meeting, Symes told Kushner that the best way to handle foreign policy issues of the Trump campaign would be to organize an advisory group of experts to meet with candidate Trump and develop a foreign policy approach that was consistent with Trump's voice. Symes believed that Kushner was receptive to that suggestion. Symes also had contact with other officials associated with the Trump campaign regarding the campaign's foreign policy positions. For example, on June 17, 2016, Symes sent J.D. Gordon an email with, quote, a memo to Senator Sessions that we discussed at our recent meeting, end quote, and asked Gordon to both read it and share it with Sessions, page 105. It's the Mueller Report. If you believe that you're not being snooped on or that nobody cares about your online data, well, then I'm sorry to disappoint you, but you're wrong. Hackers, governments, and ad companies all slurp up your data. That's why I recommend getting the software that I trust to protect my online activity, ExpressVPN. Their apps use powerful encryption to secure your data. ExpressVPN runs in the background of your computer or phone, and then you use the internet just like you normally would. You download the app, click to connect, and you're protected. I never go online without ExpressVPN, and you shouldn't either. ExpressVPN is the fastest VPN, costs less than $7 a month, and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Take back your online privacy just like I did with ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com tom. That's expressvpn.com tom for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com tom. That's expressvpn.com t-h-o-m for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com tom. Tom to learn more. I got to tell you about an amazing story. Robert Burns wrote this back in March in the Washington Post. It starts out, he says, disappointed with the election results, but not ready to give up on politics. Katie Fahey sent out the modern equivalent of a message in a bottle on November 10th, 2016. I'd like to take on gerrymandering in Michigan, she typed in a Facebook post. If you're interested in doing this as well, please let me know. She added a smiley face emoji and left for work. It turned out hundreds of people were interested. They grew to more than 425,000 people who signed a ballot petition to amend the state constitution. This is the state of Michigan, my home state. And they grew to two and a half million people on election day who on 2018 took away the power of politicians to draw districts. This is amazing. 
On the line with us is Katie Fahey herself, the executive director of The People. Prior to joining The People, Katie was the executive director of Voters Not Politicians in Michigan, where she led over 14,000 statewide volunteers to organize and pass a ballot proposal with 61% of the vote, resulting in changing the Michigan Constitution with regard to this. ThePeople.org is her website. And her Twitter handle is K-T-E-A-F-A-Y Gala, G-A-L-A. Katie, welcome to the program. Hello, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. So people who live in states that are heavily and highly gerrymandered, first of all, did I do a reasonable job of explaining what you've been doing? And do you want to fill in the blanks or the cracks on exactly you know what you did and how this happened in Michigan? Sure. Yeah, I think you did a really good job. But so I was not in politics at all. You know, I always voted and listened to the news and paid attention, but never thought I would lead a statewide ballot initiative to amend our constitution. And really was just seeing a lot of frustration, seeing a lot of people who were sick of the system of politics. In general, they were unhappy with the state of politics. Maybe they didn't like the 2016 candidates, but just kind of felt stuck. And when I put that, hey, I want to take on gerrymandering post out there, I quickly saw that not only was I concerned, but apparently thousands of other people and then ultimately millions of other people in our state had the same concerns about a lack of representation on the behalf of people and politics being too motivated by just one-upping for a party benefit instead of actually benefiting the people on the ground. So we quickly assembled, met with a bunch of other internet strangers and figured out, okay, our constitution in Michigan says that the people can write constitutional language, gather a bunch of signatures, and then put up a law for the vote for everybody to vote on. So we tried to figure out how do we do that. And it was an absolutely amazing journey, really getting to meet people in every single county of Michigan that wanted to find a better way to do things and who are willing to donate their time, their energy, their money to actually make it happen. So it's been a really inspiring journey. And with the 2020 census coming up and therefore a new round of redistricting coming up, now more than ever is the time to be thinking about this if your state still has politicians in charge of drawing the district lines. Right. And essentially, just you know, to clarify terms here, democracy is where the voters pick their politicians, their representatives. And gerrymandering is where the politicians pick pick their voters. They decide which areas where they want, you know, what voters that they want. And both parties do it, have historically done it, and it is not something that is conducive to a good and functioning democracy, in my humble opinion. So, Katie, what suggestions do you have specifically for starting the process for somebody who's, say, in, you know, South Carolina or Georgia or, you know, some other Alabama, some other red state that, or even a purple state, you know, Michigan, I guess even now moving in the direction of being a blue state, you know, one of the Midwestern states who want to take on gerrymandering? Where do they start? Yeah, and there's blue states, too, like Maryland right now, where the Democrats are way over gerrymandering, so Republican voters don't have actual representation. I think the biggest thing to do is figure out what your options are in your state. So unfortunately, not every state does have a ballot initiative process, but there's a couple different ways that you can, quote unquote, take on gerrymandering. So that was one of the first steps that we did. The other thing that's important to recognize is that politicians and lobbyists and special interest groups, for the most part, if they're the ones who are trying to suggest a different way of drawing the lines, they're probably doing it for their own benefit. Mm 
So unless the actual people of our country and the other people in your state step up to say, hey, I want to be looking out to make sure I get representation, this probably isn't going to happen. And organizations like The People, which I work with now, or Voters Not Politicians or Common Cause, are all here to help regular folks figure out how to do this. Doing research in your state, usually there's three different ways you can take on gerrymandering. So one, you can try and work with your legislators who are paid with our tax dollars to create laws at the local state level and suggest that you don't have politicians drawing the lines. One of the biggest conflicts of interest with gerrymandering is the actual people who are in the current seats right after the census are going to be the ones who are looking at the map and deciding which voters they want and which voters they don't want voting for them. Right, or voting against them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, even just removing who does that line drawing is a really important step. Mm Mm-hmm. Great. And I know Common Cause has been all over this for a long time, and Mm -hmm. apparently thepeople.org as well. Do you see this as a movement? I mean, is this spreading around the country? I know California, you know, went with nonpartisan commissions famously some maybe almost a decade ago. And as a consequence, they've really cleaned up their political act in California over the last however long it's been. How many other states have done this? Well, so there's about 12 states now that really have some kind of alternative. The really exciting thing in 2018, you actually had five different states bring this up to voters, and the voters overwhelmingly support these initiatives. That was in Michigan, Missouri, Colorado, Utah, and Ohio. And there were plenty of court cases, too, brought, because one of the other options, if you don't have a ballot initiative process, is to actually bring a lawsuit to say how the lines are currently drawn are illegal to try and get a standard This is the one that Um, just went to the Supreme Court, or the Supreme Court just ruled on last week and kicked it back down to the lower court and said, fix this. Right. And yeah, and so you see that there's states across the entire country. And there's a lot of people who just recognize that our election system is failing us. It is not actually being responsive. It's looking out for a very few select people. And the people on the ground are the ones who are suffering, which I think is why there's so many people looking to just try and fix the system so that hopefully a lot of the other issues we care about can start being addressed instead of this gridlock and inaction that we continue to live with, not only in D.C., but at home, too. Yeah. Amen. Katie Fahey, the executive director of The People now. ThePeople.org is the website. Getting rid of gerrymandering. It is great what you're doing, Katie. You're an inspiration to all of us. Thanks so much for dropping by and talking with us today. Thank you. Pauline in Los Angeles. Hey, Pauline, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? Hi. Okay. A couple of things. What about the idea of investigating McConnell? I think it should be done. I, the I think the House should, yeah, be, should be looking into Mitch McConnell, and I think one of the things that they should be looking into is the possible impeachment of Mitch McConnell. Yes, and also, even if, he, even if they don't successfully do it, because obviously, you know, he controls the Senate, and even though Kentucky's probably going to still vote him in, it could at least expose and show other purple states and red states, you know, that they're getting screwed over because he's getting the sweet deals and he's got the connections that are coming into Kentucky so that he can get reelected. Right. Maybe it can start showing other states, especially if Democrats were to get on this kind of a campaign and start exposing Republican parties and what they're doing via the Senate and other senators, Republican senators. Yeah. Also, because as far as impeachment goes of Trump, the problem with that is that it's not 1970, whatever, anymore. Our country is broken in mm. many ways, and there was no Fox TV back then. So we really can't say that we know how things would go. So I don't know where I stand on that, but I do see the 
trouble, the danger in that. Also, I just wanted to quickly say what possible reasons why uh, this administration would want to start a war with Iran, especially if it would make oil prices go up. It seems to me that the problems with Iran, this administration was maybe in coalition with what they wanted, the, the coup that they were trying to do in Venezuela, mm. and that they're trying to continue with their plan. Maybe they're continuing to, still planning to put another uh, attack on Venezuela or coup. Perhaps they also have other deals, maybe with Russia or the Saudis, you know, to recompensate the Saudis, or maybe Keystone, these other places where oil, if they've got deals that could compensate for... What used to happen is the Koch brothers' refinery down on the Gulf Coast used to do Venezuelan oil. But once they got the pipeline from Canada, they can do Canadian oil now because it's designed for this really heavy, sludgy oil, and they don't need the Venezuelan oil. So boom, we throw an embargo on Venezuela, and now you got Elliot Abrams, you know, convicted war criminal down there, trying to mess with them again. And the situation with Iran, I mean, you know, cutting off Iran's oil, cutting off uh, Venezuela's oil to the world is going to raise oil prices, which makes Saudi Arabia happy. It helps out Russia. It helps out the oil barons in the United States. These are all, you know, Trump's buddies. Right. So, yeah, it all makes perfect sense. Pauline, I got to move along. But thank you for the call. Elizabeth in Lowell, Mass. Elizabeth, what's on your mind? What is on my mind is the Democratic Party and how they should do. I think that Newt Gingrich, when he was speaker, that they had meetings about what words to use, how to use. Oh, he had a famous word list that all the Republicans had to memorize. Yes. Well. We need one because they absolutely don't use them. I am a big fan and worked for Elizabeth Warren in Massachusetts when she ran for the Senate seat. Mm -hmm. And I am in contact with her office all the time with my suggestions because I'm 73, retired, and disabled. So I can't go out and do things. But I worked the phone for her when she ran for that. That's great. And I told her if she did not read this report, I would never vote for her again. I think it's disgusting that politicians will get on the air and say, well, I haven't read the report. Which report well, are you talking about? The Mueller report? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, oh Elizabeth Warren that's read that. That's a great job. And, that's, and after she read it, she said, you know, we need to impeach this guy. So, right. yeah, I, I, you know, spot on. Elizabeth, thank you. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.